A lot of disagreements are one person wanting to force someone using the voice of power to force someone to change, to do something differently. And the other person's only motivation is to leave, like to get out of the way. And so when you have one person that's trying to force you to do something, and one person that's trying to like find any exit possible, how would that ever turn into a constructive conversation? Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge a podcast for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. In every episode, I speak with successful people from a variety of backgrounds to unpack everything they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm speaking with Buster Benson. Buster's had a well-storied career across Silicon Valley, having worked at Amazon, Twitter, Slack, and Patreon. But He's also an entrepreneur. He's built and co-founded several incredible businesses like 43 Things, Health Month, and currently is the CEO of 750words.com. This was an incredible episode that you won't want to miss. We talked all about Buster's background, his early days at Amazon in the late 90s, and how he discovered his talent and passion for building things and for writing online and how all of the cumulative experiences that he had led to writing his book, Why Are We Yelling?, which is about the art of productive disagreement. You can get the full show notes, the transcript, and my newsletter at theknowledge.io. You can find Buster online at Twitter, at Buster. And if you're a writer or into writing, check out 750words.com, which I've used in the past to build a habit of writing daily. And last but not least, check out Buster's awesome book, Why Are We Yelling? If you love this episode, please engage with it, subscribe, share it with a friend, and most importantly, please don't forget to leave a review because it helps us tremendously to grow the show and reach other people just like you. I didn't know where to start with you, actually, because you are extremely, I want to say vulnerable online. I don't know if that matches your perspective, but even just looking at your website, like forget about, you know, like Twitter and all the other spaces that you're on. Just looking at your website, there's a plethora of stuff and information and almost anything that everyone could want to know about you is there in some form. And it was weird because, okay, I knew we were going to have this conversation. I didn't want to look at too much of it. I was thinking of, I think it's David Letterman. It's all there. You wouldn't have to have me here if you had looked at it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he just wants to be led by his curiosity and, and see what happens. And so I kind of wanted to do that. But simultaneously, you have this really great page. I think, I don't know if it, I think it's like a your About Me page, which has like this graphic with all the the time mm. of your life. And that seemed really interesting to me. And so I thought maybe we could start with your background and your upbringing and then see what threads we can pull on and see where that goes. Yeah, well, I'm old, I'm, I'm 45. And yes, I do have a page on my website that is has mapped out my entire life up to this week. For every single week in my life, there's a box and the box is start from you know, when I was born in May of 1976 to when I turned 100 years old in 2076, because I have a goal to ride a bike around the block on my 100th birthday. That's my one like <laughs> always present life goal, because everything else can sort of be hung from that in some ways, like my health, my relationships, my, you know, my mental capacity, my stress, to just get me there. I just want to have a long life that is by the end of it, I feel like I, I'm still living a quality life. So that was, so that was, I think a lot about death and I think a lot about life as a, as a result of that. And this, okay. this map, so I, you know, I grew up in Southern California. I, I have, you know, I was raised with, you know, a Japanese mom and a white dad <laughs> and he was in computer science. He was an engineer. And so I had a pretty standard, like middle, upper middle class life, had good schools, did okay in school. I never wanted to get A pluses or A's. I always wanted to get the A minus for the maximum like effort to reward ratio there. Can and I just I, double click yeah. on that quickly? Sure. <laughs> okay. Is, is that, how was that impacted by, you know, was that maybe just your upbringing in terms of like how you were brought up where you had a freedom to do that? Or was that more just an intrinsic, this is how you are and you want to impose that on the world? 
I've tried to tease this apart before to understand like what is because I have a kid now. I have two boys, eleven and five. Okay. And I'm trying to help them like sort of find the same mindset that I had found early in my life around seeing things like things that could be a drag, like school, <laughs> as games. And so I saw school as a game where my goal is to do enough to get an okay grade and then to also pursue my interests. So I was always twisting the assignments to do what I wanted to do. And for the most part, teachers and professors have always been pretty amenable to that because, you know, ultimately they want to, you know, the good teachers want you to just enjoy learning. So it worked well for me. And yeah, so I, I don't know how it came about, but it definitely was a formative sort of pattern throughout my life, throughout my early school, my late school, my early career, my late career. And even now where I think about things, not as like, you you know, you walk into a university or you walk into a new workplace, you don't just assume that you're going to take on all the rules and all the, all the assumptions and the, the tricks that you need to do. Like you have to make it your game first and then sort of figure out sure. what you're going to do within your own content. That makes sense. Did you find, I'm interested in compared to maybe your peers, I know that Irvine, particularly maybe around that time is very, you know, like loose and... I don't know if I'm using the right words, but like a, you know, very adoptive place to be in the world at that time. And I'm interested to know, were your, were your peers like that? Do you, was that something that was just unique to you in terms of like your own like perspective? Or was that no. something that was <laughs> like part of the culture? Okay. Yeah, no, I was, so I, I, I would classify myself as an extreme introvert early, early childhood and up all, all the way up through to probably middle of high school. Like I, my nickname was silence in school. Cause I just didn't talk. I didn't want to talk. I was too nervous <laughs> to talk to anyone. I wouldn't wow. like go up to the counter. I wouldn't ask, if I didn't understand the assignment, I wouldn't ask the teacher, you know, those kinds of things. So my friends, I always was just scrambling to have friends in the first place. And by the time I did find my crew sort of like in the middle of high school, it was a uh, was cross country and track. And we didn't really bond on academics so much as lifestyle philosophy that kind of stuff. And I did finally really like find a really close group of people that did share my values and shared my sort of approach to life. And many of those people, like a good hand, like five plus of them are still really good friends today. So when I was 16 to where I am now, like I, I might not have changed a whole lot because, <laughs> you know, we, we were all still really close and we shared some of the same stuff. So yeah, I, I guess in some sense, like I, w I spent many years struggling. And then I, when I found my, my people, then I sort of realized, well, I can be this kind of person. Like it's not, I'm not just like trying to survive. I can actually just be myself. <laughs> and that was really important. So that could, going back to your first question, it could sort of speak to why I'm willing to be authentic on the internet. Cause I felt like it was a hard lesson for me to learn to be authentic in real life <laughs> with my peers, my family, with my yeah. friends. And I saw the internet as sort of an extension of that. Once I found it is that there is a lot of reward to being yourself. Like there's a lot more to win or to gain from being yourself and projecting that outwards than there is from hiding it and uh, forcing people to try to guess who you are. Sure. Okay. Maybe the next question that I'd ask off the back of that, I'm really interested to know what your first, what were your first experiences like on the internet and what were the first places you explored? And I don't mean to ask that in a, like a patronizing kind of sense, like, you know, when did you first discover it? But I'm really interested to know, I think there were so many internet subcultures and you were like mm -hmm. right in the heart of it, I think pretty much throughout your life. So I'm interested to know like where were the places that you explored and what were the maybe knock on effects of that? Yeah. Yeah. My father was into computers and you know, that was his job. <laughs> I was very anti them for a long time, but I, I was around them my whole life. I played a lot of like, like some online kind of games, like <laughs> that, you know, sort of like these role-playing games on the computer that you did put an eight floppy disks in your computer and, and play them. And then when BBS has come out, I played a few like sort of networked, what was the game? Trade Wars was a big one of like, just like buying and selling stuff in, an, in, a, in a shared community of people that you don't know. And I was very much into like video games and stuff. So when I believe the first, my first real, I remember I gave my first email address after I graduated college. So I was sort of late, like 98. Is that right? Yeah, 98. And then immediately jumped on Maryland, um, Live Journal, and these kinds of journaling um, websites that were really just about like posting gossip on the internet and quickly sort of learned how to make websites from that. It's like, because I want my, my blog or my website to be 
interesting. So I would just always be trying to innovate on that stuff. And that's what got me into ultimately like web development, programming, computer science, and eventually that became my job for a while. But yeah, so I was, I was immediately drawn to not necessarily the commercial aspects, but the community aspects, the you know, year 2000 blogger and movable type and gray matter and all these things were coming out to like software you had to download your computer that would FTP files to the websites and usually break. So yeah, I was really into that. That was my introduction. And at the same time I worked at Amazon. So it was like the polar opposite of like selling stuff on the internet. And those two things sort of just sort of fused into like on one hand, it's like publishing authenticity, people on the other hand, it's like data, like security transactions expand, like, like just like growth money all that stuff. And those two forces have been like sort of battling in my life for, for another, the next 20 years until I ultimately got spit out the other side. And I'm now very much back to like my original intent of like wanting to build a web that is more about bringing out the best in people than bringing out the money from people. <laughs> yeah, that's, you made a really good point. And I think there's two threads I'd love to pull on and I'm not sure which to go with first. I know that so you did a degree in creative writing, you mentioned, you know, coming across LiveJournal and starting this, you know, being able to write online and having that creative streak. Was that where that started or were you already having like a tingling of writing before that? Oh, I was, I was, I was a creative writing, yeah, like you said, graduate. I, I was working on my great American novel at the time, you know, I had a whole system. It was my whole identity. Like I'm writing a novel, it's going to be, I was planning the whole thing out. I had all these notebooks I would do certain number of pages per week. And then I really, I swear, you know, like many, I don't know, 23, 24 year olds that are like trying to write the American novel, you realize like there's just not enough material in your, in your head to do that. So I, I ended up trying this thing called NaNoWriMo, which was, I just happened upon it as like this national novel writing month every November and ended up writing a couple novels that way, which I really, really enjoyed because it was just like these brain dumps of like where I am now, rather than trying to like write something that's, you know, of the caliber that's beyond my reach. Yeah. So I saw that and I really, so again, like finding these constraints, finding like, what is, what is the right tool to like bring out what I'm best able to do right now? I thought NaNoWriMo was a great one for that. And yeah, so, but yeah, and then that sort of translated to publishing online. I, I love writing. I love, you know, conversation and putting it on the internet where anybody could read it seemed like this you know, magical, magical shift in the world. And I was all there for that. Can I ask when you started on NaNoWriMo? Yeah, I did the first one in 2000 and the second one in 2003. Yeah. And eventually when I moved down to Berkeley, I was in Seattle at the time, I happened upon someone that knew someone that worked at NaNoWriMo, like a sort of nonprofit, and it was a few blocks from my house. So I had to go meet them. And I was on the board, ended up being on the board for a while because uh, of my work with 750 Words and a couple other things. But yeah, I, I love that organization and I think they're still amazing. If, yeah, if only more of us could just put everything aside for a month and write a novel, I think it would be better. You know, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a big ask though. It is a big ask. It, it's, uh, so I've tried Nano eight, no, seven times. I didn't get my eight peat, but seven consecutive years, I think starting in 2012. Oh, so you've done it years. seven times? <laughs> I've tried it seven times. <laughs> I've completed it twice in terms of writing 50,000 okay. words. And then the third wow. year, so I was working in corporate law at the time. Funnily enough, so, okay, and, and I guess maybe then from here we'll go back to your early Amazon days because I have some questions about that. But that's one thing I found interesting that I tried NaNoWriMo twice in the two years before I started working in corporate law. One of those years I was unemployed and I could barely write more than maybe 22,000 words. I don't know what it is about having all the time in the world, but I couldn't seem to, <laughs> to use it productively. And then as soon as literally my first year in corporate law at one of like the biggest firms in the world where you're doing all these hours, suddenly I write 50,000 words and I do it the, the next year again. And the year after that, I almost did it. I think I got to like 30,000 words, but that month I was also averaging something like 95 hours a week. And so I just, I shut down. I, I wow. quit a week early and I was like, this is too much. But the point oh, wow. is that all, those three years consecutively, I wrote more than I had maybe even in the two previous years combined. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can relate. I think I wrote both of my novels while I was at my desk at Amazon. So, <laughs> yeah. I think it might have been different because I was working a lot of hours, I think, but not working. Like, my heart wasn't into it as much. So I think there was a mix of that. There's a lot of people that are, you know, clocking the hours but not doing the work. <laughs> okay. So what was it like maybe, okay, coming into Amazon, first of all, like, what was that journey of, of getting there? And then the second part is, you know, what were those early days like, both mm. professionally in terms of what you were doing for work, but then also, I know you mentioned kind of this maybe tug internally of finding the balance between like your creative pursuits and the things you actually care about and then the job that is maybe putting food on the table. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much, so much there. I was, I was there for five years from 98 to 2003, I mean, 2000 five or eight years after that is 2006 and then yeah i've been, i've worked closely with them past that so i i've i sort of see that as like the cauldron that my my like career dna was formed had and it's not what you might expect from that statement i guess so early on it was a startup it was you know i think there were like 2000 people when i joined i was on customer support so i was just answering emails and phone calls and you know, doing it on the night shift. So I was, you know, doing it for people in other parts of the world. And it was scrappy. It was just like, everyone was just excited about the internet. And I was there to like help people walk in through how to like use a browser. And it was great. I was really into it. I felt like the money was ridiculous because, you know, coming right out of college as it was a bachelor's in creative writing, I did not expect, I was working at the, at the art museum before that. I did not expect to be making, I think it was probably like $20 an hour, you know, plus overtime which there was plenty of. And I was like, wow, I'm a wash in money. What do I do? And, but yeah, it, it was so fast paced. It was, I was working 80 hours a week, like most people back then. It was just books and music and they launched auctions and then video and then more and more of that. And then, like I told you, I sort of like, I, I scrapped myself like into like someone that could write code too. So I was publishing like intranet pages and learning that on the fly. And it was fine because nobody in the world was trained as a web developer. And I just happened to be in this place where they were basically internally training everyone how to, how to do this stuff. And I just jumped on, jumped on that bandwagon and I loved it. I mean, I felt a lot of those people are still my friends too. Like the, a lot of those people are like people and some of them still work there. I think I saw the shift when my job stopped being like, I was on the personalization team. So doing things like similarities and you know, shopping cart recommendations, that kind of stuff. And I just saw the pattern. I saw like, okay, the way this works is you just take what people do, you put it into the algorithm, you show them stuff that's slightly like that, and you're going to make endless money. And I just got bored of that. And I was like, my last, I went from customer support to trainer to web developer to program manager, product, they had a technical product program manager to software developer. And then by that point, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm too bored. I learned everything that I need to learn to start my own company. So I, I went and did that after that. But, I, you know, I, it's, the company it is now is, like, so different from what it was back then. But it was, it was formative in the sense of, like, I saw this open wide vista possibility. And even though they chose a path that I didn't want to take necessarily, I still see that there's that possibility there. Yeah. And so you touched on the fact that I guess during that time is you're also starting to build your own things and you maybe built a few projects during that time. And I think you also published one of your NaNoWriMo novels mm -hmm, during the mm -hmm. following decade as well. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's been enough years now I could tell some of these stories. I was, I was, <laughs> I built a text ad service for blogs. So like really medium sized blog to be like, you know, a direct, like you could buy for $5, you could buy a text ad to go on other people's blogs if you have JavaScript. And I was running that, like in some cases, like, you know, I'm, I don't know, uh, under my desk and something <laughs> at the time. And I built a thing called the, the idea. Like, so I was building a lot of, I was learning Perl at the time and I was learning like how this all works and just, I loved it. A lot of it was like flashes in the pan. Like the text ads was called, what was it called? Ad farm. Like it blew up. It got like featured on something ugly and suddenly my servers all melted and I was like, oh, sh shoot, I can't do this. So I had to turn it off. <laughs> but many of my, like I, I was in this pattern of building websites, seeing if they worked, seeing if I could sustain them, seeing if I wanted to keep working on them. And then, you know, nine out of 10 of them don't. And then some of them did. Some of them are still around. 
But yeah, the last thing I'll say is that I, I realized sort of in year five or six that I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to just like climb the, the ladder. For a while that was interesting. And then I was like, instead of climbing the ladder, going back to like my turning things into games, like I was, I wanted to be a level one everything. So I, I wanted to be a level one marketer, or level one designer, level one software developer, level one project manager, level one man. And I actually told my bosses at the time and he was sort of like, okay, we can't do that officially because there's no career thing that says that, but like unofficially, that's your job. And if you want to like go embed yourself on this team and learn marketing, you can do that for a month and you can do it for... So I, I was so... I was I love that because you know, that was a big gift for me to first like realize that's what I wanted and then to be in the place that was so perfect for learning all these different skills and to have a manager that was willing to sort of entertain it. Like, I felt, and then to be paid a lot of money on top of that, like it was, it was great. So I, I have no ill will to the whole thing. And to this day, I still like, I'm, I, I think of myself as a generalist and I, whenever I need a job, I will like narrow that down into something that can get a job, but cause people don't like to hire generalists, but that's how I see myself with just someone that's interested in how the things connect and not, not, I mean, I like the details too, but I, I tend to hop from vertical to vertical to like understand them better no i love that and i absolutely agree i think funnily enough that is almost word for word something that i talk about on uh, the course that i run uh, but just also in general maybe like on, on twitter and, and spaces is this idea of first of all i love the idea of being a generalist because i think that fits me very well similarly mm -hmm. i don't know if i've necessarily had the opportunity to have a boss that says you know you can just go run around and learn whatever you need to learn but i think i've been able to build that in a way like throughout my career as well like i started very early on so i taught myself like some design and i used that design to get into marketing and i did some like very early marketing mm -hmm. and then i but i think okay long term this is like the immigrant mindset i wanted to go into like some kind of profession so i was like okay i'm gonna be a lawyer that's what i'm gonna do but i'm gonna like pursue all these other things on the side so i'm nice. still doing like some marketing jobs and still doing some design i'm building websites doing all these random things on the side um, yeah. And then I think I started consulting for startups. Maybe I launched one or two things of my own. I also like previously built a business. And so I think as you go on, you're like accumulating information through your role. I think you maybe get some know-how from what you're doing. And, and particularly for you, I mean, having the customer success element, having some marketing element, having product management, and then building all the projects, you're getting all of the the tools and the skill set and then being able to experiment wildly and and you know sow some seeds and see what grows yeah 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 it's yeah so it's a i think it's a very privileged sort of path that i've taken but it's also up there's downsides as well i think but the upsides are really just being able to follow curiosity you know to follow like when you run into a problem like not having to find a person that can solve your problem, but trying to be having the tools to figure out the problem, even if it's in a different domain, I think is really valuable in a lot of ways because life is sort of chaotic <laughs> and we end up needing to, so it's so much faster to find an answer than to find somebody with an answer sometimes. But, you know, that could be also my introvert side speaking a little bit too. Yeah. With those early projects, was it more like, what was the motivation? Were you just following your curiosity and just pruning some different, different fields and seeing what stuck or were you actually trying to find one key thing like there's something you wanted to knock out of the park and you were just testing lots of different things to see what really hmm. struck gold i think while i was at amazon i was i was really trying to find a way out of amazon <laughs> so i wanted to start a company okay. so i needed a, i was experimenting with a lot of different ways of because the internet was still you know extremely new the tools were still barely working and but i was at the the frontier of that and i could sort of see like be the first person to make the connection so my first startup was about like it was called 43 things and it was about making a list of goals and then using the internet to help people find people that have accomplished the goals you want to do and getting tips from them and it was a pure like you know blank slate blogging play like instead of just writing on a blog write about your goals and organize everything around what people want to do and it turned out to be a really good way to target SEO at the time because most Google searches are about and so we ranked really highly and ended up making a successful business out of it but then got required by Amazon so that was the other three years of, of that and 
Yeah. So, but then after after that, I think there was a point when I turned twenty seven, <laughs> and I always think of twenty seven because in astrology, even though I'm not really an astrology person, like it's like the Saturn returns. Like it's, it's it was the year that like me and my favorite musicians killed themselves or died. You know, it's like this year of 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 reconfiguration. And I remember like that year, like everything was falling apart. I hated my job. I hated my life. I didn't like myself. And so I, you know, ended up, you know, I was married. I got divorced. I quit my job. I shaved my head. I sold all my possessions. I like left my house. I, and I made this plan of like a thousand days to like reinvent myself and a thousand days. (laughs) Yeah. This is, this could be a long story. So cut me off, but yeah, it was like this moment of death and rebirth, right. Of like, Okay, I saw that path. I saw where I was going. I didn't want to be that person. I'm going to kill that guy, and I'm going to start over. And I actually ended up changing my name, like all three of my names, first, middle, and last, on a whim to names that you know were voted on and flip, coin flipped and uh, decided. And uh, so at that point, that's sort of at the end of that phase was when I realized like my question was, how do we change ourselves? Like, how do we... Like, can we change ourselves? And if we can, how do we do it? Like, is it even possible? Because I was thinking about a lot of these different things, like technology is being used to persuade people, recommend things, like the internet is being used to form communities and change behaviors and habits. And I got deep into like quantify itself and all that stuff and trying, and then at the same time had this sliver of like doubt of like, is this all working or is it not working? Is this all just a, a racket to like sell things? And, you know, so I tried many ways to change myself. Like, you know, I took, I did a month where I was like, I'm going to gain five, 10 pounds this month. And the next month I'm going to lose 10 pounds, you know, things like that, where it's like not change for a purpose so much as change for change itself to understand like, what are the levers I need to twist? I need to understand like, what are the, like, is any of the habit science legit? So I, that's when like Habit Labs and Health Month and Locavore and 750 Words even and so many other websites that have come and gone uh, came from. It's like this sort of pursuit of using technology, using the web, using social media, I guess, as a way to like, can accountability help us change? Can you know, various sort of placebo effects help us change? Can social unity help us change? And trying to find the answers to those questions. Yeah, that carried me from like for like another ten years, I think, and yeah. So that that was, I think, there's always like this central question, and then eventually that changed to something that's more about like who who should I be? <laughs> like, how do I how do I exist in the world without harming things? And how do I? Because it's not about fixing biases, or it's about like repairing. I don't know. So I'm I'm sort of in the middle of this question right now. Like, how do we add something? valuable back to the world without hurting it in the process. Like I came away from the tech world. I my, quit my last tech job in 2018, I think. And I don't know if I'll go back because like all this time I've had these ideals going through working at Amazon, Twitter, Slack, Patreon, and each time having the best intentions and each time coming away feeling like, am I making the world worse? Like, especially Twitter, <laughs> like, like I, I made the world worse. I had good intentions, but like I made it worse. And that fear now of like, you know, it's not about like, can I change myself or how do I change it? Like, cause like who's to say that I should change? Like who's to say that the change I do won't make things worse for the people. And so now I, I think a lot about like really like self-reflection and thinking about like, how do we, what is, what are the big ways we could participate in the world while accepting it the way it is and contributing in a way that that doesn't end up you don't end up regretting so yeah long answer but and there's a lot more detail in there but hopefully that's the gist yeah i know there's there's so much in there i'd love to maybe just digging in on that last part and thinking about your experiences maybe at companies like twitter slack like all of those companies are in my mind ones that have huge promise and maybe that's kind of what you went in with is this idea that these are things that can change the world in some way whether that's positive or negative but also change the way that we communicate the way that we interact with each other all of them in very different ways obviously like slack is maybe more generally geared towards organizations twitter is i think in some ways democratizing speech and you know having this like short blog 
format or I can't remember what the original words were, but like a mini yeah. blog. Like real blog. You can say, notes, yeah. yeah, just like a few words and sprinkle them out. But I think it's, and again, I'll, I'll get to your experiences, but I do see that conflict, at least in my own life, where I can see on one hand, the destruction that can happen when misinformation spreads and false ideas spread, or not necessarily false, but maybe quite potent ideas spread. Mm -hmm. And through algorithms, pe people can be dug into trenches that they can't see out of because everything that they see simply reinforces what they are already inclined to believe. And then it, that can also go into like maybe things like beauty and fashion and health. And there's more and more we are kind of being groomed into identities that are almost built for us if that makes sense like that there is that perspective but then mm -hmm. on the other side i also definitely see so i came to the uk from nigeria and i see this huge tech scene that's now booming in nigeria and across africa and i see people in kenya people that are getting access to the internet and i think maybe this is also the difference where in the us or even in the uk the first computers were the first computers. And that is how people started with computers is like these really old, like the Macintosh or, or whatever, um, you know, Atari computer. But in Africa and a lot of, and maybe India and places now, like people's first computer is a mobile phone. Right. And so they are jumping in right into that kind of like last third of all of this history of development. And people are jumping in right here. And their first interaction with the internet is getting straight into Facebook and straight into Twitter and straight into some of these other things. And obviously, okay, there are negatives and we see like these viral threads where loads of information spreads and it's rampant, but then simultaneously, it's like people being able to have a voice and people that this is the only device mm -hmm. that they have and this is the only internet they have and they are on Twitter and they can see everything that we see and interact with everything that we interact with. So yeah. I think it's an interesting duality there where there's this magic and then there's also the capability for maybe destruction. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I certainly don't think anything can be just labeled as evil. It's really just like the line between good and evil goes through every single heart, goes through every single product, goes through every single service out there. And we can sort of be lured in. For, I mean, I think there are ways to use it to sort of push people in that direction of evil or good. But yeah, ultimately there is, you know, you can't can't just cut anything off entirely. Like I, I feel pretty strongly about that. You know, even if it, even if it was possible, which it's not, I think we have to still deal with the fact that we're part of the problem and we're part of the solution. And the same goes for everybody else. And I think that leads right into why are we yelling, which is the book that you wrote. And I think that was published right around the time that you left your last tech job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I left my last job at Patreon to finish this book. So yeah, I think I, yeah, okay. it was published in 2019. So I'd love to ask, Okay, maybe let's just start with where did the book come from? Like, what was the inspiration? I know some of it I could possibly guess, but yeah. <laughs> from your perspective, like where, where, where did that come from? Yeah, it actually started with a viral medium post. So when my second son was born, I took a month or six weeks off and I, to keep my mind from rotting, I think I became, I, I dove into this cognitive biases Wikipedia page because it's been, it had been bothering me for a decade of like, I don't understand biases. I don't understand like why they exist. How are we finding them? Are they real? Like how are they structured? Why do we have them? How do you fix them? All that stuff. And I could also just couldn't remember them. I couldn't remember like all the different ways. And so I thought I would just like immerse myself in the data, which I love to do. The beginning of the problem was just like bring on everything, just pile it on and then feel like the overwhelm of that and let your brain sort of like digest it and try to make sense of it. And after doing this for like a month, I came out with like this post, which is called the cognitive bias cheat sheet. And it, it was like 17 minute read. It was called cognitive bias cheat sheet. It wasn't made to be clickbait at all. Like it was like the most boring post, but for some reason, I think because it promised like this gem of like synthesizing a really complicated topic, it blew up and it's like one of the top hundred medium posts, I think. And that was really interesting for a lot of reasons. One of them being, I don't know, I just wasn't used to like my post doing that. Second of all, I was like, I wasn't under, I didn't understand why it was happening. And third of all, is like book editors started emailing me like, you want to write a book? Like here, here's a deal. And so I pushed them away a bit because I had a newborn kid and I was working and books are hard. And event, but eventually sort of was, was found an editor that seemed to like understand 
how I wanted to go about writing a book, which was not necessarily to sell any books, <laughs> but to my, my goal was to be proud of writing a book. And if it was going to take two years or 10 years, like I was going to take my time and they're being a great editor, like accepted that and also like helped, helped me like form it into something that was actually a real book and ultimately did sell pretty well. But it started about being about cognitive biases, about arguing or as the, well, actually no, it started about cognitive biases. The title was thinking is hard, which is like the subtitle of the blog post and I was like, who cares? Like, of course, thinking is hard. There's already plenty of books about that. Why is thinking hard and when is thinking hard? And I sort of settled on arguments, disagreements as the venue, like the arena where all of our biases were meant to be used, right? It's where they go from like being sort of in the background to being front and center. This is what we're doing, <laughs> kind of modules in your brain. And, and so what do they do for us? They help us in a lot of ways win argument, even if we're not right. They do this by like filtering information that's not convenient to winning. They help us jump to conclusions when like more data might confuse us. You know, they help us sort of make sense of data points that don't quite connect, but connect them all into a, a coherent narrative. They help us like make generalizations. They help us sort of, you know, remember the right things to like use later. So it made sense in that context. And it also seemed like a novel book. It seemed like, like this is useful for me as a generalist, like arguing is something that everyone does, we can all relate to this. And it's something that for some reason isn't talked about a lot. Like no one's an expert arguer. Like there's expert debaters, there's expert salespeople, but there's no expert moderators really out there. And maybe diplomats in theory are, but really they're, they're like, they're just fighting for their team still. There's no one that's truly out there trying to connect, build bridges, see common, you know, and to bring us back into a coherent, like cohesive community instead of dividing us. And so that was like, like, if I wrote that book, I would feel proud about it. So I did, and it took, you know, it was like, it was difficult, but that was the genesis of it. And yeah, I, I was, I still feel very proud about the book because it, it isn't what I could, I could not have written that without a book. Like I couldn't have written that as a series of blog posts. I couldn't have written it on my own. It needed the crucible of being on a book deal with a publisher and a really great agent and a really great editor and like having this like really compressed anxiety around the election and everything that was just like contributing to it that made it happen. And, you know, I look back on it saying both like that sucked, you know, that was the most difficult time of my life, but also like at least something nice came out of it, something useful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting book. And I think what I find the most interesting is that on its own, like as a standalone book about cognitive biases, that is like one thing that is already great. And that is extremely useful for a lot of people. But the the title and the framing and it being incredibly prescient at that time where there is a, a lot of yelling, there's a lot of arguing, there's a lot of looking past each other. There's a lot of people jumping to conclusions, not listening. I think it released into almost the perfect melting pot in a way. But funnily enough, I think it hasn't really ended simultaneously as much as, okay, you know, some parts of uh, global politics have changed and presidents have changed. There is still an extent to which people don't seem to be able to see eye to eye and we still oh, yeah. fall into <laughs> of these cognitive biases as well. Yeah, I don't know if I've put a dent in that problem at all. Like, I think there is something, it's a very different, I mean, I'm still not the best disagreeer. Like I will get heated and I will, you know, and I spent three years of my life just like trying to figure this out, maybe four years. And, you know, obviously I, I probably, so people have read it. Like, I think it's really hard to, it's a skill. It's a, our disagreement, productive disagreement, I think I've come to think of it as a skill that we were never trained <laughs> and that if we could practice this and get better at this, over time, we could shift the way that discourse happens, but it's not a read the book and immediately be able to do it kind of thing. You have to take baby steps because your body is going to hijack you, you know, very quickly if that's your habit and getting to a point where you can get excited about disagreement instead of dreading it. Like it's great to have that, but like, it's a long journey. It's really hard to get to the point where you're like, oh yeah, you know, even the worst person in the world. I would have a conversation with them 
if they wanted to. I mean, obviously the first question is like if they want to or not. But. Yeah, I think funnily <laughs> enough, that's a big point that you touched on because sometimes people aren't open to having the conversation in the first place. I think sometimes people just want to argue. That's it. That They just want to share their view and, and say what they think and know that they're right. And they don't yeah. want to hear anything other than that. Right. Well, a lot of disagreements are like one person wanting to force someone using the voice of power to change, to do something differently. And the other person's only motivation is to leave, like to get out of the way to like, and so when you have one person that's trying to force you to do something, one person that's trying to like find any exit possible, how would that ever turn into a constructive conversation? You need to both shift your own perspective and be like, you know, my goal is not to change you because I can't do that. <laughs> and then the other person has to be like actually interested in communicating backwards. So it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a big difference from most of them, but it can be done. It can be done. And it can be done quickly too. When you, when you have the right mindset and you go into it with the right opening and the right consent getting and uh, context, then it works like, like magic, but any small misstep will make it not work. I want everyone listening to this to go and read the book, but I'd <laughs> love maybe if you could pull out, what would you say are like the three or four key lessons? Yeah, so there are like these eight tips to try that are sort of like framing the book. The first one I think is important because it's just to sort of like listen to to look for your your when your anxiety spikes because that is the moment you enter like sort of like if you're like Link, you're like you're in the overworld, everything's fine. As soon as like some anxiety like some you disagree about something that's unacceptable and your blood pressure like spikes. That is the moment that you go into the dungeon and you're like, okay, now I'm battling and I'm going to try to win this. And that is the moment when you can start to, if you can open that up a little bit and sort of redirect it back to yourself and say, instead of thinking about how I want them to change, I should think about what I value that feels threatened right now. Like, what is it? A, what do I value that I now feel threatened by? And is that value truly threatened? And how can I communicate to them? Like, do they truly want to hurt that value? Or do they have some other, you know, agenda? Like oftentimes they're not even aware of the things that they're, that they're supposedly threatening. So if we just shift and think about like, whenever I feel upset, it's usually because I care about something. It's either I care about the person, I care about my own autonomy, I care about my own health, I care about my own safety, I care about this group's safety, I care about this person's sort of ability to lead a happy life, whatever it is. And that brings in warm feelings, it brings in like kindness, and you can use that to connect with a person. Another one would be asking open-ended questions, like asking questions that you don't know the answer to. So most of the time in an argument, we do ask questions, but they're always like, why are you so dumb? <laughs> yeah. Like, how can you believe that this is true when this is clearly not true? Um, those are not questions that have answers that would ever surprise you. It's better to think about questions where you might actually learn something. And it's a selfish pursuit. Like you can ask like, what do people like you, you know, what do people like me miss about what's, what you're thinking? Like, what are my blind spots? What are my, like, how am I seeing this wrong? How are you, like, and who, what do you get out of this belief? How was it formed? That kind of stuff. Because then a couple things happen. One of them is now the, the discussion might go somewhere that's not like this predetermined route that you've been a thousand times. Second one is that you might learn something from them because, <laughs> like, it's not often that you get access to information like people that you disagree with are like these bundles of information that you don't have access to and if we don't sort of tap them for that we're missing an opportunity third is that by asking these questions it's a gesture of goodwill right it's you're actually actually you're not trying to force them to do some say something you're actually trying to get them to open up and, and if they can then that might sort of start a better pattern of like asking opening questions instead of ones that are meant to bash people in the head so that's another big chapter. There's a, let's see, a third one might be speak for yourself. I think, you know, it's really, like, it's really hard to catch ourselves talking about other people that aren't there. <laughs> Saying like, this person thought this and they did this for these reasons. Instead of doing that, talk about yourself. Talk about, you know, maybe, maybe you saw something that hurt your, you know, your sense of safety or your sense of, of truth or whatever it is. And if you can bring that person in and ask them, like, why did you do this? Like, tell us, tell us in your own words, you know, what was going on? Like, what led you to this? What are we missing about how this happened? And bring them into the conversation so that they can speak for themselves. Cause then again, that's another area where like 
you can be surprised by what people say. We, we have these perfect projections that we think are the truth, right? We think people are the most evil, awful people we can imagine. And then we might be surprised that while those kinds of people do exist, maybe this particular person isn't one of them. Maybe this particular person, maybe there's some complexity there Maybe that you can find. Maybe there's something else that, that can sort of turn this from just projecting shadows everywhere to learning something about people. So that's a couple of them. <laughs> no, I think those are great. And they are incredibly useful just because now that we spend so much of our time online and people are already talking about the metaverse where we're going to be spending every waking minute of the day, apparently <laughs> online locked into some kind of, yeah, I don't know whether it's play, whether it's work. <laughs> yeah. I think we have enough time on zoom as it is, but yeah. I think that, would be a really interesting world. And I'm interested to know maybe what you think about this part as well, actually, particularly considering your background and being able to participate in some of the early internet companies and being at some of these great businesses over time and seeing the progression of the internet and how it's interfaced with people's lives, particularly because you also happen to have a childhood without it. And now you have kids that are growing up with it. And now we have a potential future where I think we're still maybe in a middling phase where, okay, kids spend a lot of time on the computer, but not all of their time. And aside from the pandemic, kids still went to school and people still played with each other and had communities that were offline and we had meetups and we had events and we had all of those things. And now I think the pandemic has accelerated this trend of being remote and working remotely and just working online, just schooling online. What, what do you think that looks like in the future where we're spending all this time online and we have to communicate and we have to get along and, and navigate this online space. How, how does that look to you? Yeah, I think that date is past. I think we're already there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> I think, you know, if you look anyone, anywhere alone, they're on their phone, right? So no matter what, where we are, we're also online and, you know, it, the kids are going to have a more homogenous experience there with their lives, but the adults we've we've taken it upon like taken it to it quite readily, I would say. So what is it going to do? I mean, I think there is this sort of if you just zoom out and you're like, okay, well, what is happening in the world? Like what on the on the sort of century level? Like things things are changing very quickly, and it's hard to imagine. Like there's a, there's a trajectory, right? And the trajectory is that like, we're going to get past this, the limitations of sound and, <laughs> and speech and space. And we're going to be like able to talk to each other all the time until we go crazy. The question is, you know, I'm not trying to stop the train necessarily. I'm more thinking like, how do we find a better seat in this train? <laughs> how do we like, where, where are the ways that we can seat ourselves on this train in a way where we don't get sucked into the negativity and the depression and the anxiety and the, the horribleness and the, the loneliness and the cynicism and jadedness and like all the stuff that is existing. And it's existed in pockets and individual people, but now it can be you know, sort of spilled everywhere. And like many things, I don't have the answer. I, I think, I think about, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to encourage my kids to do? And my answers are usually oftentimes the same, which is like center yourself on your values. Like, what do you want from this day? What do you want from this life? <laughs> like, what do you, what do you believe is worth fighting for? And instead of reacting to what's attacking you fight for the things that you want and you know, it's a hard skill to learn because everything is just jabbing us all the time. Like, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? But, you know, to think about like, okay, I, mean, I keep this codex of my beliefs where, you know, I, every year I revisit it, you know, sometimes more times per year. I've been doing it for, I forget, maybe 13 or 14 years where I just, I try to capture like, what do I believe? What do I think is important about not only the world, but myself and my own conduct and revise it. Sometimes it feels really out of out of date, really stale. Whereas like, you know, my, my positions on gun control were like reactionary. And then a couple of years later, I come back to it like, okay, well now that like that's simmered down and not, not in numbers, but in at least the cultural mindset right now, 
you know, what do I really think should happen and try to tease it apart and, and then what can I do to help that happen kinds of questions. And with technology, we need to be able to coexist with technology. We need to be able to coexist with communication online. We need to be able to coexist with polarization and misinformation and war now. And, you know, I think that's the best we can do. And it's not, there's not like a, I don't advocate necessarily like moving off the grid or anything, but like if, you know, sometimes we need a drastic change to be able to like flip us back into our centered, like sort of values self. And sometimes we can do that in smaller steps, like by just you know, limiting, like I just turned on, you know, like screen time on my phone. Be like every time I'm on Twitter for more than an hour, <laughs> just like turn it off. And, you know, just doing that helps like put, you know, just reminded me of like, okay, well, I got sucked in. I could obviously turn it back on, but do I want to or not? I'm more worried, like personally, that instead of actually connecting us, we are avoiding each other more than ever. Like we are avoiding topics of conversation. We're avoiding nuance within conversations. We're avoiding people that we disagree with. We're avoiding like just people like just and we're doing this in a very like head in the sand kind of way. And that's worrisome to me because once your head's fall away in the sand, like no one's going to be able to reach you to like pull you back out. And when we do this to ourselves, like it's sort of like this self-fulfilling prophecy where the more I push people away, the more I project bad onto them. And then the more I see things I don't like and the more I push them away and it's a suspicious cycle. So overall, when I think about my kids, myself, I think about how do we, avoid just how do we avoid retreating into our bubbles all the way how do we accept the world as it is even if we don't like it how do we participate in the world even though we don't like it yet like how do we add something better how do we make things better <laughs> instead of adding to the problems it's easier i mean it's it's a simple idea but of course that the, the trick is is how do we do that so just something i gotta ask yeah it's a big question and I think what I find really interesting about the internet, when I think about what we have, it's it's fantastic. Obviously, it's it's immeasurable opportunity. But I also think a lot about the the speed and the volume of the information on the internet. And very much like what you touched on, thinking about Twitter, people spend hours on Twitter, not just one hour, but six, seven hours. People spend the same amount of time on social media that people used to spend watching TV in the like 80s and 90s. And even going a step beyond that, I think I was listening to a podcast earlier this week and the average watch time on TikTok, TikTok that has usually videos that are 15 seconds long, the average watch time is over two hours. Like the number of videos and you don't even remember what you've just seen. You don't know. I can't imagine how many hundreds of videos that is for the average watch time. And I just think you, we consume so much and I guess maybe there's, there's two points. One is thinking about how we curate what we consume and how we curate what's blasted at us because for a large part on a lot of these platforms, we're not in control over, we are not actively in control over the information that's broadcasted towards us. We are passively in control in that, okay, whatever you interact with will be shown more to you. And so maybe there is a, a choice where you can step back and start trying to strategically interact with things in a specific way. But if you're not informed about that and you're just naively jumping onto platforms, then you're, you know, you can very quickly end up in a particular corner of the internet where you're just showing certain things. And that goes to the volume part where there's so much information out there that you can travel miles and miles in internet pace. You can cross thousands of blogs. You can look at hundreds of YouTube videos without ever leaving a certain neighborhood of the, of the virtual space. Like you can go so far and go nowhere. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. There's just, I, you can, if you, <laughs> I used to do this exercise as a kid, another just like weird habit I had was like try to write down every word, you know, on a piece of paper, <laughs> might take a couple pieces, but it was a great exercise because of what your brain has to do to think of words. Cause your brain tends to start with a prompt like, okay, goats, cats, you know, Dogs, giraffes, elephants, rhinos, blah, 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 grasslands, prairies, trees. And then you start like, okay, shoot, I'm at the bottom of that. Like I need to hop somewhere else. Like how do I hop? And you could either hop like by just like 
creating a dead end and then looking somewhere and be like, okay, well, books, okay, we could go there. Or you could think about where you are and then twist it to like be like, maybe I'm talking about, you know, plants and animals. I can talk about sort of designs of plants and art, you know. So like your brain has many ways to like take where it is and twist it and see like there's a whole other infinite universe. And I think with TikTok and social media, like we spend all day, we're like just like reading Ukraine tweets and like whatever the latest TikTok memes are. And then, but you can look somewhere and be like, oh, there's a book about the sword and the stone, you know, like that's a completely different world. I could just reach my hand over and grab it and be in that world instead. So why would I choose this one or that one? And if I could choose those two, how many other ones could I be in right now? And so shifting it from like, let's oh, all just come into me to like, each of these is a doorway and each of these will like pre present like this sort of flow of information and, and sensations and ideas and stuff. But and they're inexhaustible. Each one of these things is completely inexhaustible. So we don't have to wait until it's exhausted or we're exhausted to switch. We can switch whenever we want. You can put that book down, put that stream down. And like, you know, and I think this has been interesting in the pandemic because I think a lot of these strategies have become like life-saving strategies for your mental health in other ways. Like, how do I put this down? I'm gonna take up knitting. I'm gonna take up playing the piano. I'm gonna take up you know, going on walks with my dog, you know, so we, we know that this is a strategy to like get us out of these, these like sort of endlessly, I guess, filled buckets of content into another one, <laughs> but we get to choose which ones we go into. And when we realize that there's like a, a different way to relate to each one, each one is sort of like asking more or less of us, like sort of pushing us into the direction of, of depression or hope or peace or kindness like we might want to then think like how can like do i want to be depressed all day today <laughs> or do i want to be kind that might inform where i get and i think that really ties into writing as well because people talk about writing being like a forcing function for thinking and how it influences how you think and i know you've been writing for an extraordinarily long time and i guess that also ties into your project uh, well i don't want to say project your business but 750 words which I think is probably one mm -hmm. of your like longest running projects or businesses. And I'd love to hear you talk yeah. more about huh. that, the genesis of that, and maybe how that interacts with some of your other philosophies as well. Yeah, 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 it does tie in. I think that, well, I've always journaled and I've always been like a paranoid journaler. So I'm always like writing enough books and then like going through like this elaborate process of hiding it <laughs> so nobody ever reads them. Not because I'm saying anything scandalous or anything, but just because like in order for me to feel comfortable writing like without a filter, I have to also reassure myself that it won't be seen. And so I eventually built this website. It's based on the, this Julia Cameron book called The Artist's Way. It's about sort of these eight-week program of unlocking your creative spirit. And one of the exercises in it is to write morning pages, which is three pages of just like whatever on the top of your head, just like blah, 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 grocery lists, like rants, you know, you know, insecurities, dreams, whatever, just to get out of your head and get your brain past that, which, you know, I think in the world of the internet, everything is like, and that's the thing that drew me to it originally is like, everything is public, everything is published, everything is shared, everything is seen, commented, liked, whatever. There's not, but the world of private writing has not expanded. <laughs> there has not been in the Facebook of journaling out there. There's no like, you know, private tweeting, you know? So I was like, okay, well, that's something I value, which is like self-reflection journaling. Cause like I can journal my thoughts and get to a point of like meditation much easier than just being quiet and trying to meditate because by getting it all out on the paper, it sort of just like completes those thoughts and those thoughts no longer have to spin in my head. And when I realized that this is a service that I can offer other people, it could be, it could be private, password protected, encrypted, all that stuff. And it's really easy. It's like the simplest technology on the internet. I built it in like three days back in 2010. And unlike all my other projects, like this is the one project that I neglected for 10 years. And every single month it was being used more than the last month for 10 years. And so at the end of that, I was like, well, I'm not going to get that lucky again, stumbling on something that's useful in that way. Well, it's not impossible, but like, why, why waste this opportunity to, to like help people with something that is, that I know is valuable, that other people have found valuable. 
and that I've they've stuck with it even though it's still like in the 2010 technology. So it's like a journaling practice. You, like, you write 750 words, which is equivalent of three pages. You get analytics about it. You get you sort of a number of distractions. You get if you're talking about the past or the future. You get about thematic content from various libraries I have that tell you about like are you talking about death or your job or family or health. A lot of it's just for fun, but like it still makes it, it gives you like this mirror. Like you're writing, you're you're dumping your brain into there. No one's ever gonna see it, and you get to sort of see what's in your brain. And people have been doing it now, you know, for the whole ten plus years, twelve years. People are now passing like four thousand days in a row. It's crazy, but yeah, I like it because I find I like ideas like productive disagreement where everyone can understand it. Like everyone understands what disagreements are. Everyone wants to get better at that. Same with like self-reflection and journaling. I think everybody understands that like having an internal dialogue with yourself is so important. It's so neglected. We oftentimes use other people to think, right? And that's fine. But sometimes those people don't want to hear your thoughts and you don't have to use them that way. You can talk to yourself in a way that's just as productive in a lot of ways. And, you know, reflecting on things, there's, oh, it's inexhaustible again, like, you know, you're going to wake up every morning with thoughts in your head <laughs> and you're going to want, you know, when you get them out, you're going to feel better. So, you know, I, I think it's a pretty simple value proposition there. And yeah, my goal has just been like, protect the words, make sure no one ever sees these words ever. Like I'm the only person that has ever had access to the database and I don't go in there. They're, you know, protected. They're, they're not hackable. I'm not going to hire employees that do this or anything. So it's just me and my partner. And so, yeah, I think that, yeah, I, I use it a lot. It's just a, a way to start the day, sort of like taking that dip in the, in the lake, you know, just like just sort of makes you, helps you arrive in the day. And from then on, your my thoughts are always clearer and a little bit more sort of coherent because I've gotten all the gunk out of the beginning. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's what that is. And yeah, but, you know, a lot of people use it where they just, where they write in the tr different tool, they plop it in just for the stats and stuff too. So I don't have too many, there's no dogma there. I don't think you have to do this in a certain way. Sure. But I think it's in incredibly useful. I think having, having some form of habit of, of writing, whether it's digital or you're writing physically. So that's one thing I try and do a lot more now, just because one thing I found is that, and I've used 750 words in the, in the past, but I think one thing that happens to me is that I have a tendency to two things. One is like over editing and really wanting to make every word perfect. And then the other is I think having a keyboard somehow also gives you like infinite possibilities. And so I have a tendency to just write all the words and just fill, fill a bunch of space. And maybe that's the NaNoWriMo instinct. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes writing by hand and, and having a balance. So usually I'll do like first drafts by hand and then second drafts typing. But writing by hand mm -hmm. is a real constraint because you can't write as fast as you can think, particularly if you can type fast. And it just makes you think about each sentence as you write it and really just be more conscious of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there there is this, yeah. It, it start The original habit that is, a, a, like Julie Cameron, is very dogmatic about it being handwritten. And I appreciate that too. I like writing my notes out. But yeah, I can't build the website that lets you do that. So I didn't do that. <laughs> but a lot of people, I was like, I was thinking that now you could like write your pages and then take a picture of it. But I don't know. Because you could, you could do OCR on that. And, but like, the, the words aren't there to be read again. So really, even if it was just a button, like I wrote on, in a notebook today, like I think that's the, the value. Like the, the actual writing is the value. You don't have to prove it to me. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that as a feature. But I think you're right. The value is in, but I think it's also the habit tracking aspects where you're able to have this streak of writing these words and doing this action and it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing where you're motivating yourself to do something that clarifies your thoughts helps you prepare for the day helps you think better has all of these other benefits as well so i know i've taken a lot of your time i'm going to let yeah, you go yeah. in a second i have one last question which is maybe going back to what you were talking about before you were mentioning this period of your life kind of around 27 where you had this kind of death and rebirth period where you were figuring a lot of things out what is maybe the one biggest lesson that you took from that period that that period of my life where i, I shaved my head sold everything and went sort of off the deep end in a lot of ways i changed my name 
So the biggest takeaway I had from this time, if I just like confabulate the whole narrative, <laughs> it would be that we don't really, you know, I personally believe that we bring our own purpose to life and bringing our own purpose to life is, can be, means that whatever we come up with is equally valid. That said, I think that what I want to do with my life is to, as much as possible, frame life as an opportunity to collaborate with people, to connect with people, to have positive, strong connections with people. And in order to do that, I need to invent a way to see past a lot of the automatic programs that we, we have to, we inherit from our jobs, from our expectations around family, our expectations around sort of achievement and success. And I, I feel like I saw past the, the, the end of those games, like, okay, I could be Jeff Bezos. That sounds terrible. Okay. I could be, you know, Einstein, you know, all these things that sort of are at the end points of success and these different pathways. Would I actually want to trade lives with them? No. So I have to let go of these sort of these these games that I've inherited and invent my own. So that means changing my name. That means inventing my own philosophy for life. It means tracking my own beliefs. It means making my own goal for life to be you know riding my bike around the block. It means finding the the way to build things in a way that matches my values and that doesn't compromise them. So. I think that's the takeaway I have is, is invent the game and play it to the best of my ability, I guess, and to include people as much as possible in that pursuit and let, let them have their own journey towards whatever they're going for too. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast and follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.